For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We are back in the book of Romans again. It's great to be back. Uh, we have to refresh our minds a little bit in the context of uh, the overall argument that Paul is working through. We spent three weeks in chapter 12 because what he's really getting down to is the roots, the, the heart of how to take the faith that we have in Christ, the reality that God is love, that Jesus died for our sins, and that he has offered us the free gift of forgiveness for all people, and to take how that truth and look at how it impacts our lives. How do we live lives in the middle of a world that doesn't know God, that doesn't understand God, in the middle of a world system that's really kind of designed by the enemies of God to distract us from the things that are important, like love, like relationships? How are we to honor God and to live our lives so that others could come to understand the greatness of who he is. And so he talks about it in chapter 12 uh, in the context of giving our whole self to him, that our faith in Jesus, our Christian faith, is not just something we do on Sunday morning. It's a way that we adopt a lifestyle of serving others, of sacrificing, of truth. He talks about the importance of community and how when we come together to bring God's love, that we manifest the reality of who God is in a special way, that the community of, of God's followers are supposed to have this incredible, this special role in showing the world who God is. And that a huge part of that is loving our enemies, Loving those who are not like us, loving those who we disagree with, and sacrificially laying down our lives so that other people could come to a knowledge of Him. We ended chapter 12 with this discussion on being a follower of God means hating evil. It means not, um, not going along with what everyone says is, is good, but actually having a critique and looking out into the world and seeing injustice and saying, that's not okay. Seeing hate and saying, that is not okay. Seeing selfishness and greed and saying, we can do better than that with the power of God in our lives. And that the Bible describes the world system as being under the control of the enemy of God. And that it's designed to tempt us through the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and boastful pride of life. To live a self-life. To live as though we were our own God and to live for comfort, to live for food, to live to satiate our appetites. And to miss the real thing that we were made for, which is relationships. The Bible's picture of the human condition is that we are here to love God and love each other. That is the whole purpose, and that is the only thing, according to our Creator, that will bring real purpose and meaning and joy. That is the, the fulfillment of why we are created. It's love. Love for God and love for one another. And this system teaches us that comfort is more important, that wealth is more important, that power and influence is more important. And we talked about that scene from The Matrix where it's a very similar picture of what the Bible paints where there's this world that seems real, but it's false, right? And that Cypher, the traitor, decides, I prefer the fake world over the real one. I know this steak isn't real, but I can taste it, right? And that the Bible says that as followers of God, we should have a critique over the world of men. That we should look at the injustice and look at how people are fooled, deceived into believing that the self-life is the real life, is the good life. That believing lies, like you can't love anyone else if you don't love yourself first. It's a lie. You don't put yourself first. You put God first and others first. And then you find joy. And we live in an entire system designed to deceive us of that. 
and that we should hate that system while loving the people in the system. The people in the system are not our enemies. It's the system itself. And so that gets us to Romans 13. So he's been talking about this sort of, you know, uh, raging against the machine, hating the world sort of picture. But then we all of a sudden turn on a dime and we have to ask the question, but we live in the world. We live under governing authorities. No matter what time you live in, no matter what country you live in, you live in a system that is run by men and has all the foibles, the faults that men have. There is no perfect system because people are involved. And there may be some systems that are better than others, but there is no government that's righteous. Because people are involved, and the Bible is clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one, present company included. So how are we to hate the system, love the people, and be under the authority of a fallen world government? Does hating the injustice of the world mean that we should hate government? Should we look at it and just say, you know, we need to be against the rule of law, the, the, the world of men. You know, we should, we should be against the injustice that we see and reject all authority except for God's authority. Should we build a bunker and build high walls and block the people out who don't agree with us and protect ourselves and our children from an unjust system? There are many who have drawn that conclusion. It sounds insane, but recently it's more and more tempting given the choices that we have in front of us. (laughs) Right? The world is crazy. And you look out into the world and you look at where things are headed, and it's crazy. It's scary. What are we to do in light of the present political realities we face as a nation? What does the Bible say What are the principles that we can apply to bring the love of God and the light of God into the current situation that we find ourselves in? What insights can Scripture offer for us today and our situation? Well, we've been studying through the book of Romans, and we just happen to be at Romans 13, which is a very challenging passage especially in light of what we're talking about. It says in 13 verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Wow. God is in to government. Wow. We are to hate the world system. The world system is bad. It's deceiving people. It's leading people astray. It's leading them to lives of addiction and emptiness and brokenness, of bitterness and selfishness. And the government is a huge part of that system. Not just our governments, but all governments are not leading the world according to the principles of God's sacrificial love. There are other elements, other principles at work. And so we're supposed to hate the world system, love the people who are in the world system, and yet work within the authority of the world system. How does that work? He says that we should be subject to the government we find ourselves in because all authority comes from God. And frankly, that just raises a whole bunch of questions, doesn't it? Not just for our time, but for all time. What does this mean? We need to break this down. What exactly is Paul saying here? 
What is it that God wants us to take away from this? Let's look at it a little more closely. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. The first thing that we need to call our attention to is that word subjection. What does it mean to be subject? Is that the same as obey? You know, the original letters were written in Greek, which is a far more precise, it's the language of the philosophers, and it's a far more precise language than English. So when translators take the Greek words and they make choices to translate them, it's helpful to understand what those choices are. The word in the Greek here is hupotasso, which is in the sense of a voluntary attitude of giving and cooperating, assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. So in this sense, subjection, what it's talking about, what it means is, is that we're supposed to try and, as far as we can, cooperate and get along with whatever governing authorities we find ourselves under. And we are not supposed to be standing against the governing authorities. We are supposed to be working with the governing authorities. But that is not the same as obey. We find many examples of Scripture where believers in God are trying to work within the governing authorities, but they cannot always obey. Acts 5.29 is a great example. The governing authorities in that particular context are the same men who put Jesus to death. And they go to the disciples as they go out and proclaim that Jesus has risen, and they say to them, you must stop talking about Jesus Christ and that he has risen from the dead. We order you to stop. In their response, Acts 5.29, we have to obey God rather than men. We respectfully disobey because God is our ultimate ruler here. You've brought us into tension where we have to choose directly between your commands and God's commands, and we must respectfully choose God. They are subject respectful, working as far as they can within the authority of those people, but they will not contradict the will of God. And we see many of these kinds of examples. We see the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. Pharaoh says to kill the, the firstborn sons of all of the Jews. And they, re, and they refuse. They hide them. They will not murder their own people, they will obey God rather than men. Rahab, when the people of God come up to the city of Jericho, she's a, she's a member of the city of Jericho, a citizen under their governing authorities, but she recognizes that God is at work and that God's purposes are more important than the will of her government, of her city. And so she sides with God. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel... In the book of Daniel, they work within the governmental system. Jeremiah tells them, be a blessing <coughs> to the city of Babylon. Pray for Nebuchadnezzar. Work within the city. Bring the love of God into the city. They're there as captives, and, and their government is trying to turn them, trying to brainwash them into being pantheists, into rejecting the God of the Bible. And they refuse. But they pray for the city and they win the heart of Nebuchadnezzar himself by being obedient to God and letting the power of God work in his life till he comes to faith himself and writes a chapter of the book of Daniel. They obey as far as they can and they respect even when they disobey. And they show that they're willing to work within the broken kingdoms of men. Peter and the apostles in Acts we already looked at. Paul's many imprisonments. Paul's writing this. Be subject to the governing authorities. Probably from jail, right? Like it's important to realize he's not saying do whatever government says to do, but he's also saying don't try to overthrow fallen governments. Love. And move and work within the government that you find yourself in. 
to bring about the purposes of God. So we are to be subject to government, but that is not the same as obey. But it does include working with and showing respect and being willing to face the consequences of disobeying. I would rather honor God, follow God, and go to prison if necessary than disobey God. And I will accept the consequences of that. I will cooperate with the governing authorities of men up to the point where cooperation means directly betraying God. And I will go no further than that. If you ask me to murder, (coughs) worship false gods, or deny God's name, I cannot do that. I will not do that. But I will go so far. It definitely includes things like paying taxes to an evil empire. That's a big part of what's happening here. Is he saying these people that he's writing this to are citizens of Rome, okay? Particularly, why Paul, while Paul writes this, this guy, Nero, and the neckbeard should tip you off immediately <laughs> how messed up this guy is. Nero was emperor from 54 to 68 A.D., Okay, And we know a lot about Nero uh, because of a guy named Suetonius who wrote a lot about the Caesars. He was an early historical source. And Nero was insane. He was famous for flaunting his debauchery. He was a man who was in absolute authority and he got off by abusing that authority. He would take members of the Roman Senate which still existed, it was a puppet, right, to do the will of the emperor, but he would take the high-born aristocrats of Roman society, tie them to stakes, naked, according to Suetonius, and then have himself brought out in a cage where he was wearing like a bear suit and would run out and claw at them because it was fun. He would dip Christians in tar and light them on fire and use them to light parties he would have in his garden. This is the man who's in charge when Paul writes, be subject to governing authorities. Pay your taxes. So to to make no mistake, when he says we have to work within even corrupt governments, He knows what he's talking about. But the biblical picture here is that there's something more important. There's something that God desires for us to do that we can can work within governments we disagree with to accomplish the purposes of God. Be subject to the government Be as respectful as you can, no matter how corrupt, no matter how much you disagree. Work within the system to an extraordinary degree, even one that seems hopeless. Even one, no matter how divided we become, how polarized the system gets to where you look and you're like, can can we find a moderate somewhere? He says, no matter what happens, we are called to work within the system and to respect our leaders and our government. I think that's super important for us because we seem as a country to be headed toward a time where the extremes are the only options. And as Christians, how are we to understand that? How are we to deal with that? And the answer is that we are to love and to respect and to uphold the things of God no matter what the world system does and no matter what choices are made. That's the what. What's the why? Again, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. <clears throat> Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Really? How can Paul write this as Nero is in charge? Because he's speaking in terms of principles, not in terms of specifics. He's not saying Nero's not evil. Nero killed Paul, cut his head off. And Paul very well knew that he was going to die. He writes at the end of his life, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I've run my course. My race is finished, he says. He knows he's going to die at the hands of a madman with a neck beard. If you have a neck beard, I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. You should shave it, though. <laughs> He's talking about government itself, not the specifics of Rome and of Nero, but he's saying, look, why should we be subject to governing authorities? We should be subject to governing authorities because theologically we know that all authority is from God. Now that's not the same as saying God is happy with all authority or that all authority is good or all authority does what God wants it to do, but it is to say that if we believe in the sovereignty of God, that He is all-powerful, then we have to accept the fact that whatever authority exists is because for some reason God has allowed that authority to exist. Even wicked authority, even evil authority has been allowed by God. And we can question, and we can say, why would God do that? <coughs> and the answer gets quite long and involved, but it basically boils down to this, is that we, as a people, have decided to rebel against God, and God has given us choice. He has given us the freedom to make terrible decisions, and the consequences of those decisions are often evil leaders who do terrible things. And so God allows those choices and the consequences of those choices to stand. But that's not to say that He is no longer sovereign. He is still involved. And if He allows someone into authority, he has a purpose involved with that. What is God's purpose in allowing evil authorities? Sometimes it's very difficult to see. And it's certainly not God endorsing what their behavior is doing and saying, I like it, it's good. But if we believe in the sovereignty of God, we have to look at the big picture and say, God is in charge and things are ultimately going to end the way that God has said they are going to end, and we can trust that. Jesus himself was subject to evil human authority. Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator, who had the responsibility of either letting Jesus go or giving him an unjust death sentence, said this in John 19.10. Pilate says to him, do you not want to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you by God. He's not saying, Pilate, you're God's chosen man. He's saying, you are right, you do have that choice. But I see the purposes of God at work. And the sovereignty of God is what I trust, not you. The other thing that he's saying here, that Paul is saying, is that the government exists as a gift from God. Even the evil, corrupt, horrible governments. Because anarchy is not God's way. God believes in order. God believes in rule. And the worst government that you can think of, and there are plenty of historical examples, is better than the rule of the jungle. Even the corrupt and evil governments have their own self-interest. Even Nero wants civilization to continue. 
because that's his power base. He's not going to kill everybody and tear down the entire Roman Empire because that's not in his own self-interest. And that is better, God says, than anarchy. You know, the alternative to no government in a society, in a race of people who are fallen and broken and bent towards selfishness is the Lord of the flies. It's the law of the jungle. So even the most despicable government is better than the survival of the fittest. If we become animals when we don't come together and agree on basic civil principles. Cloud Atlas put it so great where he said, the weak are meat and the strong do eat. That's where we are without government. That's where we are without God. Simply look at the Discovery Channel and watch Lions Hunt. And there you have human civilization and culture without government, without rules. I take what I need to take in order to better me at whatever cost to you. And he's saying, that's not God's way. Verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God provides and allows humans to have authority to prevent us from literally tearing each other apart, destroying the human race. And therefore, he says in verse 5, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but for conscience' sake. We as believers believe in the sovereignty of God, and we believe that God works through authority. Even when we disagree with that authority, we have to respect authority. That's the what. Be subject to human authorities. The why. Because God is sovereign and anarchy is worse. And so when we look at our current situation, we have to agree that no matter what happens, we can be confident in the sovereignty of God. And as the people of God, we can't let the political divisions, the lines that are separating us more and more as a culture, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we cannot let those lines divide us from our true purpose. The true heart of why we are here and what God wants us to do, which is to share love with everyone. The how we find in verse 6, for because of this you shall pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Be respectful, be a good citizen, work within the fallen structure that you find yourselves, and don't be distracted from your true purpose. Because our purpose is not focused primarily on the temporal. It's not ultimately, most importantly, about this life. It's about the next. It's about eternity. I like the parallel passage here where Peter is writing in very similar ways under the same governmental situation that Paul is. Nero's in charge. And what does he say? He says in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. The what is the same. Submit yourselves to every human institution. Work within fallen, broken human authority. Why? For the Lord's sake. Because you have to work within human authority and broken human systems in order to reach human beings. 
The why we find in 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. You see what he's saying? He's saying no matter how dark and unjust the governments of men get, that only serves as the backdrop to God's light. You want to live in injustice and you want to be sacrificial and you want to be loving, how much more brightly will the light of God shine in your life as the human condition spins out of control all around you? And so whatever happens politically, what will you do spiritually to uphold the true purpose of God's calling? The how is don't get so caught up in political division that you hinder your ability to love everyone. You can disqualify yourself this country is as politically divided as it has ever been in my lifetime. And it is so easy to just take sides and find yourself across the aisle from the very same people that God is calling you to love. And the politics come between you and now you have nothing that you can offer one another because you have become enemies in each other's eyes. And that is not the way of God. Let your politics be second to God's purposes. I am not saying that politics are unimportant. They're only far less important than eternity, according to Scripture. Eternity matters more. What could we do better then take a brief look at how Jesus handled this situation. The politics of Jesus' time were very divided as well. There were four main political entities of Israel in the time of Christ. There were the Pharisees. These were the religious conservatives. These were men who had a lot to gain by getting people to follow the religious rules. They were making their wealth and their seat of power through guilt and through attacking the immorality of their day. And they were perverting the Scriptures in order to establish their own power base. And they would have loved for Jesus to become one of them. Here comes Jesus, this man who is healing the blind, who the lame begin to walk. And what do the Pharisees do? They begin to test him. They begin to send messengers. They begin to ask questions. Why? They want to find out. Are you on our side or are you an enemy? And Jesus comes back and says, you're whitewashed tombs. You're the blind leading the blind. When you get a hold of someone, you make them twice as much the sons of hell. And they're like, okay, we get it. You're not going to be our friend. We're going to have to kill you. Because he becomes a threat to their power and their agenda. And whether he's God or not never seems to cross their minds. The fact that he does these incredible miracles is just an opportunity to be taken advantage of or a problem that needs to be dealt with. Their politics are more important to them than the will of God. And so Jesus becomes their enemy. The Sadducees are very similar, but they are actually the religious liberals. The Pharisees are the conservatives in charge of the synagogue. The Sadducees are involved with the temple itself. And they are very wealthy and very powerful, but they don't believe in things like bodily resurrection. They're not even so sure there's an afterlife. They're all about temporal blessing that we need to be experiencing the blessing of God in this life. 
And the more you serve God, the more that you love God, the more rich you will become, the more powerful and influential you will become. And this life is is where all of our focus needs to be. And Jesus lumped them right in with the Pharisees. The blind leading the blind. Then you had the zealots. The zealots were more like the Pharisees. They were religiously conservative, but they were a, a militant wing where what they wanted to do was gather Israel together to overthrow the rule of Rome. And you could see where Jesus would be a very tempting figure. Where if they can get Jesus on their side, he could rally the people of Israel, raise the dead of the soldiers as they fell on the field, right? How can we get Jesus on our side? And he says to them, render under Caesar what is Caesar. He says to them, pay your taxes. And they're like, we got to betray him. we got to turn him in. And then there's Rome. Rome, you know, to Rome, Israel's this podunk backwater place that's just between them and Africa. That's it. And as long as they obey and pay their taxes, Israel is not an important place. And Jesus doesn't take their side either. Everybody wants God on their side. It's true today. It's true then. When I used to play junior varsity football, we wanted God on our side. (laughs) Right? Help us beat the infidels on that other team. Right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Romans, everybody wants God on their side. They want to claim God is with us. The conservatives, the liberals, the Republicans, the Democrats, they all want to claim that God is on their side, but God is bigger than the broken politics of mankind. He doesn't agree with us. He doesn't have to make the choices that we choose. He can choose what is good in every situation. He doesn't have to corrupt himself by choosing the lesser of evils. They want God on their side so that they can get God to serve their purposes. And God is not an idiot. Look at what Jesus says in John 2, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew (coughs) all men. And because he didn't need anyone to testify to him concerning man. For he himself knew what was in man. You see what it's saying? (coughs) Jesus had a right anthropology. He knew what the heart of man was. And all these people who were pledging allegiance to him, who were wanting to follow him, who were believing in him, would turn on him the moment they felt that he wasn't serving their interests. And he would love them, he would serve them, but he would not be their puppet. He would not take up their cause because as God, he has his own cause. He didn't choose sides because he had his own agenda. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek and to save the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Romans. He came to seek and to save those who didn't care about politics, the poor and the rich, any who would respond, he came to bring the love of God into a dark world. And he would not be a puppet to politicians, 
John 10, 10 and 11 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's why Jesus came. And that wasn't on any man's agenda. Only God had the heart for the lost men. John 3, 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I didn't come to rally the forces, to rebel against Rome, to establish the supremacy of Israel. I came to reconcile man to his creator. That's why he was here. What does that mean for us? How do we follow that example as people who live in a democracy? You know, one of the things that's really hard about taking what the Bible says about some of this stuff is they didn't have the stewardship that we have. We live in a time where we can vote, where we have a say. How are we to be good stewards of that while making God's purpose the supreme purpose of our lives? We follow Jesus' example. Put the gospel first. Learn about the principles of love, of self-sacrifice, and work out your politics with God. John 17, 18 to 21, Jesus is praying for us. He says, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Their mission is my mission, he says. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying, Father, not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. As you and I are one. As I you are in me, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. You want to change the world? Let your love for one another be what people see. That will change the world. That is worth dying for. And that works no matter what the kingdoms of men will do. Because love is the most powerful force there is. God himself is love. And our love and our ability to love cannot be broken by our politics. What it means is that your politics don't have to change in order for you to know God. It doesn't matter how you came here this morning. And to invite God into your life, you don't have to change how you're going to vote. God wants to know, will you have a relationship with Him? This, all of this, what it means is no matter what your political views are, what God wants you to know is that you are loved and you are welcome to join His family. Your vote and your faith are not necessarily the same. The only stance that you need to change, the only thing that you need to do is to change the hardness in your heart before God. That is what he cares about. Are you willing to be reconciled to him? Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. That's the point. That's the only question God has. Not what are your politics, but are you willing to let me in? Are you willing to consider my ways and receive my love and forgiveness? That's what Jesus was about. That's what his church should be about. And it is so much more important than politics. The second point I think we could take away from this is don't let your politics disqualify you from loving all people. 
God has put people in your life that are very different from you. And you may have very strongly held personal political convictions. And that's not necessarily a moral issue. Your choices are yours. But when you choose to divide yourself and to argue with someone over politics, when you should be loving them with the love of Jesus Christ, you are hindering the advancement of God's purposes in your life and in that person's life. And you have to ask yourself, what is more important? What is of more value in eternity? And we need to consider how our actions might impair our ability to share. I think we should consider what we do in light of what it will do to our opportunities to share the gospel. And that includes things like yard signs. Am I saying it's immoral to put a yard sign in to say who you think people should vote for? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying have you considered before you put that sign in your yard how it might affect your ability to share the gospel? I'm asking you that question. And is that important to you? We don't need to go around judging people who do this, but we ourselves, as followers of Christ, should weigh the benefits and the costs of such actions, bumper stickers, what we talk about at church. When you come to home group, what are the things, the burning issues that you are eager to talk to people about? And how might that affect your ability to share God's love and the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? Weigh those choices carefully and put God's purposes first. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Even though I'm a free man with no master, Paul says, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I am not subject to the law. And I did so that I could bring Christ those who are under the law. When I am with Gentiles who do not know or follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. Paul was a lawyer, you know. The law was his life. And he says, the law is so much less important. And if it gets in the way, I toss it aside. I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Nothing comes before God's love. That's the point. Don't be fooled. This is the third and final point I want to make. Don't be fooled into thinking politics comes first. I've been reading this book, The Screwtape Letters, with my son, Logan. Just, uh, it's this great book. I love C.S. Lewis. And he's so creative. He's so brilliant. And what the book is, is it's an imagined correspondence between an older demon named Screwtape and uh, a, a trainee named Wormwood. And each chapter of the book is a letter from Screwtape to Wormwood teaching him how to better corrupt the hearts of men. And it's just creative and insightful and it's set against the backdrop of World War II. And uh, Wormwood's uh, subject, the man, has come to faith, and Screwtape is doing the best he can to help Wormwood make this man's faith irrelevant. And as World War II breaks out, they're talking, and they see an opportunity. Here's a way to get him off track. And I want to read you this section. Screwtape says, whichever he adopts, see, what they've seen is the opportunity here. He says, let's see if we can make him a pacifist. 
And if we can't do that, let's make him a patriot. It doesn't matter which, but let's fit him into an extreme so that we can discredit him to everyone. And he says it doesn't matter which he adopts. Your main task will be the same. Let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him on the stage at which religion becomes merely part of the cause, in which Christianity is valued chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or pacifism. The attitude which you want to guard against is that in which temporal affairs are treated primarily as material for obedience. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing, provided that meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements and causes and crusades matter more to him than prayers and sacraments, and charity. He is ours, and the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cage full down here. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Don't let the enemies of God push you into making your politics what your life is about over your faith because it will disqualify you. And we live in a time, and it seems to me as though it's headed more and more that way, where if you stand out with love and compassion and patience, as our country becomes more and more divided, we will see many come to know Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you're good, that you have promised justice. You promise the end of evil, uh, the establishment of truth and just and mercy and love, that you will wipe the tears from our eyes, and that you promise us an eternity with you and with each other in which we see goodness reign. And we ask God that in the time between now and the time between you establish that kingdom, that you will help us to be busy at work seeking and saving that which is lost. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.